You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Amen. Uh, so as Marshall said, we're in a short sermon series uh, going through um, a few texts in the Proverbs seeking the wisdom of God. Uh, but before we do that, um, I just wanted to, to acknowledge what most of you have already remembered, but some of you may have forgotten, so I will gracefully remind you that it's Father's Day. Um, and so, so if, if you have a dad, you should call him today um, and, and tell him that you're thankful for him. And, and I just wanted to say that, that for the fathers in the room, um, you do not play a small role in sharing the gospel um, with the world around you and the way that you love and care for your children in the way that you serve your wives. Um, that, is, that is not a small task, and we are humbled and thankful for you. I um, also want to acknowledge that for some of us, Father's Day is difficult. Um, whether, whether we've lost a father, whether we've had a broken relationship with a father, or whether we're a father who feels like we failed, um, I want to remind us that there's grace uh, for those things in Christ, that there's reconciliation uh, for relationships in Christ, and that there's forgiveness to be had and to be given in Christ. Um, and, and moreover, that we have a perfect Father uh, who we can always count on in our Lord and, and who we can always model fatherhood after in the way that He loves us and cares for His people. Uh, and, and so, so call, text your dad. Um, we're, we're thankful for y'all. But this week, we are going to the Proverbs to seek wisdom. Now, we're going to the Proverbs to seek wisdom primarily um, because God has given it to us in the Proverbs and because we acknowledge that largely we are a young church, and so we don't have the wisdom that comes with age and with experience, uh, but God has promised that he would give us wisdom if we ask him for it. Uh, and, and he has given us practical wisdom in the Proverbs. And so today we're going to go to the Proverbs specifically in regards to the idea of justice. And, and my hope this morning is that we would have a concept of justice that is transformed and developed based upon the gospel. And, and, and I really say that that we need a concept of justice that is shaped by and informed by the gospel because there are a lot of conceptions of justice in the world that are desperately lacking in regards to godliness. Because we can't restrict justice um, as we might feel prone to do simply to social equality in which we feel the need to champion any and every cause or people group that are viewed as an other or as marginalized. But we also, on the other hand, can't treat justice uh, simply as legalistic and punitive, in which we value and idealize the destruction of evil and the promotion of good at the cost of mercy and patience and grace. In other words, I, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees in regards to justice. The justice of God is an all-encompassing worldview that simultaneously hates evil, stands for good, and serves the outcast and the helpless. 
The Bible is clear in saying that God loves good, commands good, and despises and destroys what is evil. But you would also be hard-pressed to look in the Bible to find any command or theme as strong as the call for God's people to serve the poor, to serve the orphan, to care for the widow. So we can't mistake others' poverty, helplessness, or loneliness for evil to be hated, which if we are prone to make justice all about law and righteousness, we might do. But on the other hand, we cannot mistake societal evils or evildoers for voiceless, destitute, and powerless causes in need of a strong helping hand toward equity. Our problem in forming faithful understandings of justice is that we often draw lines that don't exist and create false dichotomies between two things that are actually good and true. And, and so today, we will, we will see that these things aren't at war with one another. The hatred of evil and the promotion of equality. And, and so we will go to the gospel in search of a holistic view of justice that will propel us into action. Hear the word of the Lord from Proverbs 25, verse 5 again. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. When I read this text, it blew me away to think about the idea that, that those who seek the Lord understand justice completely. It seemed to me to be something that was untrue. I seek God, at least I'm convinced that I seek God, but I feel like I fail to understand justice completely from time to time. I know that at times I overemphasize equity at the expense of righteousness. And probably more often I overemphasize righteousness at the expense of equity. But the words are clear. Those who seek the Lord understand justice completely. And, and so as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Deuteronomy 32. And in verse 4, Moses says of God that his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So, so God is perfect and all of his ways are justice. There's nothing that God does that is not an outpouring of justice. When God acts, he acts justly. And, and so the ways of God have been revealed to those who seek him over and over and over again. These just ways. And so as we seek God, we see his justice. And, and this is most notably true as the works of God are revealed to us clearly in the works of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and so through Jesus, we understand and know God, and therefore we understand justice completely. So, so how should we go about formulating a proper concept or worldview in regards to justice? Church, we should do no more and no less than to look at how Jesus treated justice and how Jesus executed justice. 
First, we can look at what the prophets said the Messiah was coming to accomplish. The prophets of old, before Jesus came, promised him. And the things that he said about him are striking. The first chapter of Isaiah talks all about the sinfulness of the people of God. Their unrighteousness. But then in verse 27, the prophet tells us of the future work that will be done by Jesus. It says this, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. Later in Isaiah in chapter 42, God says this of the future King Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in all the earth. And the coastlands will wait for his law. So among the many things that Jesus came to accomplish, justice seems to be primary. The work of Jesus was about reconciliation between God and man. It was about showing the people who are sinful and undeserving that they are loved and cared for by God. It was about restoring creation back to its proper order. It was about the destruction of evil and the forgiveness of sins. It was a work of love. But in all of this, it was a work of justice. All of this was justice in action. And so Jesus initiated and executed justice in his time on earth. And, And he did this in three primary ways. First, Jesus was committed to justice. He was committed to justice because he promised justice for the people of God immediately following sin in the Garden of Eden. When the lying serpent was told that the offspring of woman would one day crush him. He promised justice when he told our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, that he would bless the nations through his offspring, that he would establish a just kingdom and a king that would reign forever. He promised justice through the prophets telling of a Messiah king who would come to redeem and establish the people of God. But but Jesus was committed to justice because he didn't only promise it, but he delivered on his promises. Justice begins with a commitment to justice that manifests itself in action. The second way Jesus initiated and executed justice is that he engaged with the injustices of the world through incarnation. From the heavenly realms, Jesus saw his people oppressed. He saw the poor going hungry. He saw sinful desire corrupting every facet of the created order. And in order that justice would be executed, he put himself in the midst of the problem by becoming man in the flesh and experiencing the injustice that his people were experiencing. 
He surrendered his glory for lowliness. Justice did not come simply from a command from the heavens for his people to start behaving. Justice came by the God of all things giving up his glory and his majesty to be made lower than others so that they might be exalted. And this leads us directly into the third way in which Jesus executed justice. Jesus executed justice through suffering. Jesus suffered in humility in order to establish and bring about justice for his people. Justice did not and does not come without a price. And it cost Jesus more than we could ever comprehend. Justice came at the cost of his glory, his dignity, his comfort, his life, and even his righteousness. In his death, Jesus suffered the wrath of God that his people might be justified before him. Suffering brought about justice. And, and, and so now we can go back to the original verse from Proverbs where we are told that through seeking the Lord that we can and will know justice completely. We know justice because all of his works are justice. We know justice because his works are shown to us in Jesus as clear examples of bringing about justice and, and clear realities of justice being established. We can go to Romans to see how the works of Jesus truly establish justice. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The work of Jesus established and brought about justice in a very unique way in that it made a sinful people a righteous people. We are justified through faith in Christ. We are justified through faith, which doesn't mean that we have just been made right before God, but that we have been made into just people. We are beings of justice. We know justice completely, not just because we have sought the Lord and seen his works, but because we have been made into a people marked by justice through faith. We are just, and therefore we must do justice. The question is how? How do we go about doing justice? What does that look like? The next proverb that we will look at is Proverb 31, verses 8 and 9. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So justice and doing justice clearly means Standing up for those without social or economic power. Mute, destitute, poor, and needy are all general terms that apply to many people in many groups of people. There is one qualifier in this text that, that's given to us so that we can filter our efforts in our stand for the powerless. And that, that qualifier is that we should judge righteously. Christian justice must always be rooted in godliness. 
meaning that we must stand up for those who are without power, but only when they are experiencing injustice. What I mean is that we don't need to, and in fact we should not, stand up for causes that are opposed to the law of God and the love of God. Those people and those groups of people and those causes who would stand against the law of God and would stand against the love of God should in fact have as little power as possible. We should rightly pray for their voices to be muted. That is justice. But there are many in our midst who are truly mute, who are truly destitute, truly poor, and truly needy. The homeless, the impoverished, racial minorities, immigrants, women, These are all groups that on one level or another in our society experience injustice and powerlessness. To cast an even broader net, we could say that that all who are apart from justifying faith in Christ are experiencing injustice. And it is the work of the church to see that justice comes to them through the proclamation of the gospel. So as a people called to do justice, how do we do it? If we know the people that need justice, how do we go about bringing it out? I think it's simple. We should participate in justice in the same ways that Jesus did. Led by the spirit of Jesus, we should do the same things that that he did. First, we must be a people committed to justice meaning that we don't just make promises that we care about justice or that we will do justice, but that we act on it. We can't just say that we want to see the hungry fed. We can't just say that we hope that the widow is cared for or that there's reconciliation among racial groups. We must make good on our promises. And and how do we do that? We do that through incarnational ministry. We can't look at injustice from the outside and simply say we would like it to be different and never step into the midst of the problem. Whether physical injustice, social injustice, or the spiritual injustice of people being apart from Christ, we must step into the midst of the injustice in order to see that justice is brought about. And not only must be must we be willing to commit to justice and to step into injustice, but we also must be willing to make sacrifices and to suffer in order for justice to be established. Justice does not come without a price. We've experienced justice in Christ and it cost him his life. Justice on earth has never come without people of peace who are willing to suffer for the cause. The poor are only provided for at the expense of the wealthy. The widow is only cared for through the service of the community. We know that this is true. This is an obvious reality. We can look at a primary example that we've seen in our nation's history. We know that that many men and women have suffered in our country for the sake of the injustice of race-based slavery being abolished. 
We know about many men and women who suffered in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And we also know that in the area of the social injustice that minorities experience, that there's still much work that needs to be done. And we know that this won't come without the price of people suffering for them. But that's just one example. There are limitless examples that could be discussed in terms of injustice that we need to engage with as the church, as the people of the God who only does justice. But we don't have that kind of time. We don't have that kind of time and it simply isn't necessary. You don't need me to tell you who is poor among you or who is voiceless. You don't need me to point out to you the destitute in our community or the needy. But out of passion and out of what I think is timeliness for our church, I will address one injustice that I think our congregation in Montrose is extremely equipped to engage with. Children in need of homes. The orphan is a consistent symbol and example in the Bible of one in need of love-driven, equity-producing, and transforming justice. Who is more voiceless than an infant or a child with no home or no family name to belong to? Who is more destitute more helpless? Who's more impoverished and dependent? Adoption is one of the most powerful and obvious ways that the people of God can take part in promoting justice and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. 1 John 3.1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Galatians 3, 25 and 26 says this, But now faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Under the law, our former guardian, we were slaves to our sin, constantly being reminded that we were not righteous enough, perfect enough, or accepted or loved fully by God. We had nothing to offer God, such that even our works that were good were considered filthy rags before his glory and righteousness. But in Christ, we have been adopted into the household of God, even though we had nothing to offer him. He made a sacrifice that we might experience mercy, love, and justice. 
before we had a name in heaven. And that name was not my people. But now, by the love, grace, and justice of God, he has given his people a new name, and that is my people. Before we had no inheritance, only poverty of spirit. But now, through his adoption, we have a right to the full inheritance of the kingdom of God with our new brother, Jesus. We are loved sons and daughters, discipled as sons, disciplined as sons and daughters. We are full members of the household of God as true sons and daughters. And if this is true of us, which it is through faith in Christ, we should respond by caring for the orphan as a church committed to adopting children. It will require commitment, It will require engagement, and it will require sacrifice. But we can and should give children homes who need them. In so doing, we will show a child and the world around us the love that God has for his people. I'm not saying that every family at Sojourn can or should adopt a child. But I'm telling you that every family can and should care about the orphan and should probably consider adopting a child. It's an easy thing to discount. It's easy to discount because it will be hard and costly. But so is your adoption into the household of God. It will take endurance and patience. But God had endurance and patience with you to adopt you as a son or a daughter. It will make things difficult for the children that you already have or the biological children that you will have in the future. But so did your adoption. Your brother Jesus gave his life to invite you into his household. Your biological children sacrificing for adopted brothers and sisters to be part of the family is not only a beautiful picture of the gospel we've experienced in Christ, but it's a very practical way to raise your kids with hearts of love, mercy, and justice, driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some families, and for many of you single people in the room, you simply cannot or should not engage with orphans through adoption. But that doesn't mean you can't join in on the fight against the evil that is children without loving homes. You can get certified to babysit for foster parents in your midst. You can give of your time volunteering to serve children in need through tutoring or coaching. You can give of your finances to support organizations that fight for the rights of children. We should do this knowing that children have human value. They have human dignity and that Jesus went as far as to say that the kingdom of God belongs to them. As I mentioned before, adoption is not the only way that we should be compelled to move as the church. We should be compelled by the love of Christ to do good in every possible way that we can, so that evil will be silenced, equality will be had, and that Jesus would be worshipped. I'm going to close by showing us a picture of the things to come for the church. And I hope you'll find it as encouraging and profound as I did. 
In the book of Revelation, there's a beautiful picture of the church being committed to justice. The church is engaging with justice and making sacrifices for the sake of justice. There's a symbolic term used in the book to describe the world of sin, and that's Babylon. And when God looks down at the earth before his final judgment, that is precisely where his faithful people are. They're in the midst of injustice, suffering at the hands of the wicked for the sake of justice. They're working to see the hungry fed, the widow cared for, and the orphan adopted. They're working to see sinners restored by the grace of God through Jesus. And they're praying. They're praying for justice, crying out constantly for justice. For generation after generation, the people of God have been and will be praying for justice. That the will of God would come and be done on earth so that earth would become like heaven, free from evil and free from suffering. And in the book of Revelation in chapter 5, the prayers of the saints for justice are described as a sweet aroma or incense to God. And, and, and not just that they are sweet to God's senses, but they move God to act. The prayers of the saints for justice will bring about God's final justice. That's a promise. And I found it to be remarkable because until the very end, the people of God will be committed to justice engaging in the world around them and beating back evil with a broom through the love and power of Christ. We have a great responsibility as the people who have been made just by Christ. We're to engage in justice, but to engage in godly justice. Justice that is rooted in love, rooted in the law of God, and justice that produces restoration of what is broken, and reconciliation of things that are torn apart. And we can do justice because we are just. And we can do justice without burden because Jesus will return. And when he does, he will restore all things through justice. Evil will be vanquished. Tears will be no more. And we will feast together as adopted but legitimate children at the banquet table of our Lord and King as brothers and sisters for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and humbled and in awe of the mercy and justice you have shown us through your Son. I pray that by your Spirit you would compel us to repentance, faith, and action. And that through your people at Sojourn Montrose in the city of Houston, that you would see justice go forth. Pray that hungry mouths would be fed. Pray that orphans would find homes. Pray that sinners would be restored by grace. Pray that you would use your word and your spirit, your church, and even this morning, your sacrament 
to call us to deeper levels of sacrifice for just causes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.